Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, I'm going to try to do this tonight. Uh, a little bit of a car accident this week, so I'll, it's a rooted, I guess they say, but here, let's take a shot at it. Uh, anyway, this week I see the art of the Marshaw, among others. Can't pass that one up. Demar uh, Shaw, which is a name everybody's heard of. I don't think the people know much about him, because there's not that much to know about him. Marshaw's the big rabbi who was in the Poland in the Golden Age of Poland, which I spoke about now in this podcast series many times. I think everybody, uh, unless you're listening the first time, kind of knows what they mean by the Golden Age of Polish Jewry. Uh, and he lived smack. He had the good fortune to live and die at the right time. He's born in the 1550s, and he died around 1630. And the trouble didn't start in Poland until like 18 years later or something like that. So it's like somebody died before the Holocaust. You know what I mean? And they, they lived in a good period. Last week I did about Rav Shalom Shachna, who lived in the first half of the um, of the Golden Age of Polish Jewry, the first half of the 1500s. And that time, Poland, as I tried to explain last week, was a uh, whew, a a monarchy with a strong king or a king. Let's put it this way. A king who was a contender, he tried to be strong and uh, set up a strong kingdom. He wasn't successful in the long run, but he was pretty powerful. Sigismund III and Sigismund IV, I think. Uh, but, and as a result, the type of rabbi he liked, he made the same way. Like I told you last week, Shalom Shachna had like dictator powers from the crown. However, Marshal lived in the second half of the 1500s and early 1600s. And by that time, the game was over. The nobles had triumphed over the king. They rewrote the constitution in 1569, I think, which they stripped the king of all the important powers and gave the powers to the nobles. And in other words, power was radically decentralized throughout Eastern Europe because Poland took over, absorbed all of Eastern Europe at that time. You know, I told you many times, the kingdom of Poland I'm speaking about included Poland and Ukraine and Belarus and Lithuania and Latvia and all that. It was a big area. And... The Jews are always copying what the Goyim do. That's just the interesting thing. So, in the first half of the 1500s, the big rabbi would try to imitate the king of Poland and have power over all the other Jews, boss all the other Jews around, like Rabbi Akapalik and Shalom Shachna. And in the second half of this period, the Jews start imitating the nobles. And so power is radically decentralized in Poland. And what you find instead is uh, important local rabbinim or uh, local lay leaders who, who, like the Polish nobles, get together once or twice a year, what they call the Bada Abaratsas, which is like the Polish same. And so it's just interesting how uh, wherever the Jews are in whatever culture, they do a firm thing, but they do copy from the uh, host environment certain basic features. And the rabbis and the rich guys really try to imitate in certain ways, very interesting ways, the Polish nobles uh, uh, of that era. This is the era when the Marshal lived. Now, he came, as I said before, the actual biography is, is not that interesting, it, it, meaning nothing dramatic that we know about happened, except certain features. He came from the right family, very Hashem family, he's related to, you know, this one, and all the famous rabbis come from the Aral on the mother's side, it doesn't matter. And uh, he's born in Krakow, you know, uh, 
I said it wrong. He's born in Kashmir's, which is the Jewish neighborhood of Krakow, which was almost like a little uh, area by itself. It's its own bar park, so to speak. Uh, all, all totally Jewish. They used to write the Gitin with Kashmir's instead of Krakow. You know, and there, was, there was such a distinct community. So here's somebody brought up in the golden age of Polish Jewry. He probably came from money, I imagine. Uh, at that time, if you're an Ashkenazi Polish Jew, you're very uh, yeshivish. The origins of yeshiva go back to golden age of Polish Jewry. And the rich parents, or the parents who can, will try to get their kids an elite a Torah education. That's what he got. And he ends up marrying uh, a cousin, which was, again, extremely common. Uh, and he married the... Uh, so let's put it this way. His uncle was the Briskorov. Not the Briskorov of the 20th century, or even the 19th century. The Briskorov of the 16th century. Okay? Late 16th century. Somebody you never heard of. Mordecai Ashkenazi Halpern. Doesn't matter. Uh, and... Uh, Here's the interesting part. So he's the son-in-law of the local Rav. So right off the bat, you can tell they, they probably went to the yeshiva and said, give me the smartest guy for my daughter. But the brisk Rav at that time, and this is not atypical of Polish Jewry, was married to this woman from Big Yichus who was a financial genius. Okay? A financial genius. Uh, this is um, something I've spoken about in the past, and it goes back already to the Ashkenazi time of Rashi and Tosos. And she had sometimes these Ashkenazi women said the husband was sitting and learning and the what because he wasn't doing anything else. And the, and the wife organized some kind of business uh, in terms of import-export and that sort of thing and ran an empire and was very successful at it. These are, these are the Ashkenazi super women of yesteryear. She's a mother. She's a wife. She runs a household. And in addition, which as you know is a full-time business, even today, especially at that time before there were washing machines and refrigerators and all the, uh, you know, appliances that help. And uh, it means she ran a staff of maids and chicks and things like that, because that's what they did. And in addition to what I just said, she was in some sort of business. I don't know exactly what, but I imagine it had to do with banking, money lending, and uh, import-export. That's how you made your money. And she knew the nobles and all the rest of it. And she's the famous Adel, like you call in English, ID, ID so-and-so, so that's an AD. And that's why, as is famous, the Marshall ends up calling himself or Shmuel Adels, by which he means he married the daughter of this very rich woman, and she, not the husband, she bankrolled his yeshiva for the 20 years that she was alive in their marriage. So it's a, just a very interesting story, maybe more than 25 years, actually, when I think about it, it's about 25 years, yeah. Anyhow, uh, let's put it this way. You get your Olam Haba right here in Olam Hazah. Somebody like the Marshal, I can tell already, I never met him. He's just like Summer Bame I had. Always interested in learning. Uh, he was very smart, obviously. And you know, when you married the girl, he got instant yeshiva. You know what I mean? That was you put out the thing. Whoever wants to come learn by me, he gets three meals a day. Probably they even had a bedroom, which is unusual in yeshivas in those days. And uh, they can sit learning hawk with the boys. And that's what he did for 25 years. So he never had to go in and, and do a fundraiser. He never had to go and kiss up to the rich people. He had, he had a golden era. You know, so he put himself totally in learning. And he developed his own distinctive style. Now, all things come to an end. After he's married for about 25 years, in the early 1600s, his mother passed away. I don't know what happened, but probably the money dried up. What a bummer. And then he had to go the regular route. 
but at this time he already had a, a big reputation. See, so he was a rabbi in various uh, uh, Polish uh, uh, cities. Actually, he was a rabbi in Chelm, believe it or not. If you know anything about Yiddish humor, is a, oh, they told the stories of the Chelm, you know, the, the, the fools in Chelm. But that's a bunch of uh, um, false stories. There really was a town Chelm, and the fact you see the Barshaw and people like that where the rabbi on him there shows you that it wasn't a stupid city. It was a regular city in Poland. So he became a rov. Um, again, this is in the golden age of Polish Jewry. So there was a lot of people with money. You understand? A lot of Jews had money. And since everybody was at least at the formal level from, at the formal level, so although you certainly had, as the Marshal himself describes, if you take the trouble to read through his notes the way historians do, many bad types like we have in America Day, he talks about the drunks and the child molesters and the whole nine yards. The same thing we got now. The scandals, the people that cheat the guy and people that cheat the Jews. But you also had the regular other types. You know, not everybody was like that. And when he came in these towns, in in Tikhtin and Chelm and uh, Lublin or wherever he was, until finally, I remember at the end, the last five six years he was in Austria. He was already uh, not a not a young man anymore. He was around seventy. Died at seventy six. So uh, wherever he went, he had a huge reputation. And in those days, money was around for Torah. And so if you hired him as the rov, you can be doggone sure that part of the contract was. You agree to support my yeshiva, meaning you agree to pay for room and board for 100 boys, 200 boys, 300 boys, whatever amount, we have no idea. When it was his mother-in-law running the operation, if I remember correctly, I think he had 700 guys. That's incredible. Uh, that could be an exaggeration. When he was in a regular place, he probably had 100, 200, 300, something like that, which is pretty huge. And that's his life. And then he died, you know, and then he was 76 year old. So I just told you before, there's nothing dramatic except the fact that for 25 years, he, you know, lived a, a golden life because all he wanted to do was learn and uh, give shiurim and that sort of thing. And he didn't have to ever step foot to go raise a penny for those 25 years. And uh, it doesn't get better than that. And his mother-in-law was happy to do it. He immortalized her by calling himself Rav Shmuel Edels. That's called Maharshaw. Shin Aleph, Shmuel Edels. Even though really the name is Shmuel Eliezer, it could, you know, it could be like that also. Marina Rashmulias, but you know, but everybody he let's put it this way, he himself appreciated what she did. How could you not? And he called himself a Shmuel, the son in law of Aidi. That's how we know about her. And uh, there you have it. There were a whole bunch of these women, relatively speaking, in Eastern Europe over the course of a couple hundred years. And many of these women founded Yeshivas and Kolos. Used to call them a clothes. And if you know the they used to very often it was called Bloomer's clothes and Frady's clothes. And Esther's clothes and all the rest of it. And these were pious women of yesteryear. And they themselves were not learning, but they were big patrons of the learning in the sense of taking from their fortunes and setting aside what we would call a uh, foundation. And that's how a lot of these institutions ran. So the Marshall lived smack in the middle. Now, this period is an outstanding example. However, as interesting or not interesting as everything I just said, what's really interesting to Marshall is the following. The guy became famous not because of what I just told you, because there were actually many people like that. He became famous for the book he wrote, which took off. In Poland, in Israel today, in all times, Torah literature is an interesting subject. There are a lot of people who write books. Just go into any farm store, today particularly. Now we're living in a booming period, uh, thank God. But still, you go into a farm store, and you can see everything in the world. Another guy came out with something with Bubba Kama. Another guy came something on the, on 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 Sukkot. You know, there came something on Mishnayis, and, and they don't take off. You know, the guy could be a big scholar. I don't doubt for a second. 
somebody spent a lot of years in Punavich and Lakewood and in Hebron and all that. And in terms of quality material, actually, I sometimes I pay, pick up one or two, once or twice these unusual swarm because they're very good and nobody knows about them, so it's good for speeches. But uh, ninety nine percent of the time, who's got the time for that stuff? We all, you know, it's enough to keep them top of the classics. So, who is it that writes a safer, especially in Gamora, that becomes a classic? You, do you understand the point I'm trying to make? A lot of people write on the subject, always have and always will, and they're only known by specialists and uh, bibliographers and weirdos like that. Uh, you know, you see them in, in uh, catalogs and whatever. Nobody ever reads them. Nobody ever studies them. Uh, that's true in every genre of Torah literature. It's also true in every genre of American literature, of European literature, you know. Tons of people write uh, novels and I don't know what. History books, things like this. And only a few actually take off. And a few, few really take off and become reprinted and requoted down the line. So if you go through Polish uh, Jewry in the 1500s, 1600s, which was an era where they had a lot of big scholars, oh my goodness, and a lot of big Talmud Chachamim, and these was are flourishing, all the rest of it, Ain't that much material out there that has survived and is still used today. For example, the era I'm talking about, the 1500s, 1600s, was the golden age, if you want, of the pilpul that I've spoken about from time to time. The pilpul that's no longer used today. Okay? And that's a certain style of uh, learning Gemara, which basically is uh, on the uh, daf itself. You don't go around looking elsewhere. And, you know, you end up asking, and it's a certain approach in which you pick apart every single word in the Gemara, Every single uh, uh, atom in, in Rashi, and, and similarly in Tosus, and you throw Rashi against Tosus, Tosus against Rashi, uh, endlessly. You know, why did Rashi say this? If you could figure it out yourself, why did Rashi have to say it? And, uh, you know, if Tosus asked the question, didn't Rashi know the answer to the question? It must be that Rashi already answered it, just you don't see it because you're too stupid to read Rashi correctly. You say, what did I do wrong? I read Rashi straight. No, Rashi's not supposed to be read straight. Rashi was read with a microscope. You know, that whole particular approach which really, really flourished. Dafka in uh, Poland in the 1500s 1600s was banked by rich guys, thousands over the course of the 1500s students studying this system, and many books in Sfarm and things like this were published that have never been published more than once. And no one knows about them except a couple weirdos. I'm uh, half a weirdo, I know some of them. Uh, there used to be a guy um, who wrote about this very brilliantly, uh, Dimitrovsky, uh, Chaim Zalm Dimitrovsky, who uh, was a big expert in these uh, rare and unknown uh, swarm on, on Pilpul and Lumdus uh, from this uh, Tkufa. Uh, it, it was a Yerushalmi, taught in the Jewish Theological Center, he taught by the conservative. His professor there, he wanted to leave, but Lubavitch Rebbe told him to stay. <laughs> he wanted, he wanted, Lubavitch Rebbe wanted some, a little bit of a from influence in the Jewish Theological Center. But uh, he has these wonderful magisterial articles on this stuff back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, other than specialists like that, no one knows, you know, Meharim Namerim and, uh, you know, Halicha Solom, you know, I could throw names at you. It wouldn't mean anything. But one book, one safer, emerged out of that Kufa that became world famous and still is, and that's the Marshal. Everybody knows that. And that took off, that until 100 years ago, shall we say, uh, especially in uh, non-Litvish yeshivas uh, all over the world, outside of Lithuania, the way of learning Gemara Rashi Tosis, I think some of you know what I'm talking about, was learning Gemara Rashi Tosis and the Marshal. 
And uh, it used to be said that you're supposed to be, if you wanted to learn, if you want to know whether you learn Rashi, especially if you want to learn, if, you know if you learn Tosas right, you go see if you said the same, you had the same problem with bothering you when you read Tosas as the Marshal did, which is usually very, uh, what's the right word? Nitpicking is not the correct word because it's not, but you know, very close um, uh, readership of the words and why did Tosas say this way? It doesn't sound like it's contradicting himself what he said a little bit before. Why did he say it in these words? Why did he say it in other words? And the Marshal became part and parcel. I'm just talking now as a historian. That the Marshal became part of the of the of the trio that everybody learned in the Yeshivas of old. Rashi Tosis Marshal. Now, it didn't happen to other Mephashim. Uh it didn't happen like that to the Maram, even though as you and I know the Maram's in the bottom of the of the Marshal on the page. It didn't happen to the Marshal, the Chachma Shlomo. It certainly didn't happen to the Marshal's uh, other book. What's it called? The uh Yamsha Shlomo. This didn't be cart come something you just learn every time you learn the Gemara, you learn it together with that. But the Marshal did, <clears throat> okay? Still used, but not the way it was once was. And uh, that's really something. Notice, how do you break through to get to the uh, to, to the level of, of a living classic? And uh, the Marshal, as you know, became to be seen as the, like indispensable. So if you want to understand the Gemara, you, you have to read the Gemara and then and then the Marshal. And I'm talking about especially in an era when other Rishonim were not published. Uh, that didn't happen until like the 1700s, and little by little. And so what you take for granted today, that you can open up a Moser of Cook, a Ritva or Rajma or something like that, wasn't around. It didn't exist. People didn't have access to it. And so you really spend a lot of your time and your first Seder or whatever on the, on the, on the Rashi and the Toast of the Marshal. It's just very interesting I'm pointing out. So what is it about the Marshal that gained this iconic status when so many others just dropped along the way? That is the historical question. That is the question of the of the real interest to the historian and to the scholar, in my humble opinion. Uh, and as I said before, it's not like the Marshal had this imposing personality that he left tremendous Roshan. People talked about him afterwards the way, I don't know, you talk about the Shagasari or something. Yeah. Comes across as rather invisible figure, although if you take the trouble, as many as some historians do, to you know, to go through line by line all the Marshal You'll see here and there, he has all these, you know, uh, flashes of personality. Uh, he is, uh, you know, a social critic and things of that nature. Um, so this is the interesting question as far as I'm concerned. What is it about the Marshall took off? The best I can think of within the context of a short podcast is, and I think many will agree, is that the Marshall was able to develop his own style of the pilpul that I just talked about, but in a very moderate and short form. So instead of somebody giving a shear on something for hours and hours and hours, which used to be the style, and you would take a, 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 a stira at the level of uh, two or three implications from uh, two gemars over here and solve that one, and two toasts over there and solve that one, and two rashis over there and solve that one, and then try to solve the grand puzzle of all three of these uh, resolutions uh, I hope I haven't lost you in one the grand uh, svar that covers all six places that we just mentioned. You know, and then instead of that kind of pyrotechnics, Marshal goes like Rashi does. You know, line by line on each particular tosis, and he's usually concentrating on the words in front of him, and uh, he's asking all the questions of that particular style of learning. Why did it say this? Why did it say something else? Or this is mashra this, which is, you know, is different than what it it was implied somewhere else, and. Uh, if he's not vilged, shall we say, but very down there, very grounded, 
and when someone follows through with the marshal, uh, you know, they feel like this, this is really the shot. This is really the shot. Which is why so many Gedolis were all were like enthusiastic fans of the Marshal. And you, perhaps many of you have heard that the uh, Chazanish wrote, he said, once the Shiva stopped learning Marshal, they stopped learning uh, correct shot, you know, and things like that. And he said, that's quite a statement if it's coming from the Chazanish. You understand? Not only that, but this achieved iconic status in the Hasidic world. The Baal Shem, I read this once, the Baal Shem said that uh, all the... Uh, Famous Gedoli Yisrael uh, had Rucha Kodesh, and you can uh, dash and pilly ploy him endlessly, uh, you know, from everything they say, from the Gemara down to the Marshal. That's what he said, you know. After Marshal, not from the Gemara down to the Marshal, which means that the Balshantav, who was born about 60 years after the death of the Marshal, by his time, he already was an iconic status. You see? This is this is very interesting. Um, in the Hungarian yeshivas, in the Polish yeshivas, particularly, um, the study of Marshall was this part and parcel of regular curriculum. Uh, I'm talking about the, the the kind of Hungarian yeshivas that flourished until the Holocaust. You know, Unsdorf and the Nitra and all these other places. And that's why it was the Hungarian yeshivas, especially Nitra, uh, uh, these are not Hasidish, that produced all these farm on the Marshall. When I was younger, I used to see all the time in the original Marshal Ha'aruch. I don't think they're around anymore. They're not being published. I could be wrong. I just don't notice them. But, you know, there were these uh, Rebbe's and these uh, Hungarian yeshivas back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, I think. I think. And uh, they put out these uh, deluxe edition Marshal with all these Mepharshim the Marshal at the bottom. Because in Hungary, they developed a whole little world in Galicia of people writing Mepharshim, so to speak, on the Marshal. Just kind of, as far as I can, as, as, as best my memory remembers, this didn't happen in in the Arizona and Lithuania yeshivas. But it, in, in the in the non-Lithuanian yeshivas, uh, very much so, and you're really supremely interested in what the Marshal says. Now, what's equally interesting is that the Marshal, uh, and I know when I did the art school, you got to look at the Marshal, obviously, but I'll tell you where the art school really uses the Marshal, and I did Perakhelik, you know, I mean, they got it to parts I know well. Uh... The Marshal wrote two books, uh, two swarm, over the course of time. One's on the Gemara, one's on the Agarita. Uh, one's called Chedushi Alachas, and the other one's called Chedushi Agadios. And he himself said he wanted them published the way they are published ever since, which is one big Mamahutsa Pirish with two different uh, fonts, right? Like we all know in the back of the Gemara. The regular Marshal looks like one way, and then when it comes to Agarita, it looks like the smaller and thinner prints. Uh, which means that he, you know, uh, devoted a, a, a separate study to the Agatha, which is not always what you have, you know, it's not so common in those days. When you see the real Amdana didn't bother with the Agatha, but he did. And uh, as I recall, when I worked, at, when I used to work in the art school, whenever it comes to Agatha, you religiously look at the Marshal. You understand? In other words, if you're working for art school, you uh, when you come to Agatha, you obviously obviously you want to see Rashi and Tosa and that sort of thing, no question about it. But you always want to, if possible, bring in the Marshal or, or make reference to it. Why? Because the style of the Marshal is very normal, very um of shots, not the right word, very straightforward, very sane. Uh, and uh, the best example that comes in my head, off the top of my head, is. That weird story in, that we all know about with Adlo Yada, 
where uh, Rabbi and Rezera had a, a porn party together, and Rabbi Shechter Rezera. Really? He murdered him? He murdered him? He, he cut his throat. He killed him. And of course, he prayed, and he was a uh, Tchias Mason, and so on and so forth. The story is very well known. Really? See, Mamsh killed him? Now, most of the contemporaries of Mashah, I like this too, by the way, most of them of Mashah took the following approach. If he murdered him, he's a Chayav Misa or not. The fact that he brought him back later, is that undo the Chayav Misa? Was there a Chayav Misa in the first place? Uh, you know, from, from murdering him, if it wasn't a Chayav Misa because there was no Edom, then, you know, was, was he Chayav Dini Shema? You know, all, the, all, all that kind of approach. Could he Duchen, you know what I mean, afterwards, after killing somebody? If you kill somebody and then bring him back, can you Duchen? You know, all those, that, that sort of way of approaching it, which I call the Jonas and Abishitz way. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a certain style of, what's the right word? Uh, a gothic a pilpul, which is very cute and very popular. I like it too. Not the Marshaw. He's like a straightforward person. He says, what, you think Robert killed Rivera? Way nuts. He, he, but the word says he shechted him, right? And, you know, I'm sure I know what's in the Marshaw. <laughs> well, he was Rosh Hashiva. Can you imagine somebody normal get so drunk that they kill somebody? I'm, I'm talking to you seriously now. And can you imagine two Tanoim Amaroim? Can you imagine two Rabbonim? They get so drunk. Drunk. I mean, drunk. I don't care how drunk you get on Purim. Nobody kills somebody, right? So what does he say? He said, they didn't kill him. He made him drink so much they almost killed him, you know, because you, uh, if you pour wine down the throat, you could choke him. And, and so in other words, it didn't Mamash kill him. It didn't really mean Tchias Mason literally. Now that's not what it says, but that's very typical of Stalin and Marshall. They're trying to make the Agatha normal to the degree possible. Either rationally, rationally is not the right word because rationally follows a certain Maimonidean uh, approach in which you look for symbols and things like that. And uh, philosophy is not the right word either because philosophically, you know, the story represents certain ideas and notions. So I'm not sure exactly, it's not literal exactly either because I told you, it says he shechted him and he ends up saying he didn't shecht him. And you find this a lot of times in the mashal. So the best word that comes to my mind is normal. You have a normal shot that when you hear that, you say, oh, that's, that makes it a bit siyashavaladas. It makes them look like they weren't nuts over there. You know, that the, the story isn't as weird as it sounds. And that's a big talent. And I would say in general, that's why the art scroll, that's why you say always look at the mashal, because it'll always give this uh, down-to-earth, uh, that's the best way I can describe it sitting here. I'm just uh, rambling, but uh, it seems to me that that's French style and Marshall, which is why it's a shame that, uh, you know, they don't... Well, I guess if you get the Enyakov, the Marshall is right there on the side, so you, you can read it that way. Uh, somebody could do a very nice job, maybe they have, I'm not aware of it, of publishing the Marshall in English on Shas, the Agatha stuff. You see, I, th- I think that would be very good. Uh, because you have all kinds of stories over there, and you see the Marshall always very down to earth, very sane, very rational. And you get the impression from him that uh, he's somebody with long experience with Talmudim, big yeshivas. Uh, they obviously flocked to him. It wasn't only for the three meals a day, but because he was, he was normal, you understand? In other words, he came across very, very, very uh, down to earth. And uh, there's some famous contemporaries of his that, that, that come down in history as very uh, self-important and very angry and, uh, you know, competing with others and things like this. As far as I know, I haven't, I haven't seen anything like that in the Marshall. Now you can say like this, it's because he had an easy life. You know what I mean? Pasa Pasalo. That is true. I'm not disagreeing with that. Could be. Nevertheless, 
you get a very, uh, what's the right word, nice uh, and very responsible um, feeling whenever you study the uh, the Marshal the and the, um, and the uh, what shall I say, the personality that comes across. Now, he has his shtachs, and it's very famous that the style of pilpul that I just described, which is very moderate and very uh, restrained, and you're looking for shots, so you are using pilpulistic principles to ask why does it say this instead of that, and what is the what is the implied meaning, not only the explicit meaning, and does this con- does, does the implied meaning contradict uh, what's said explicitly somewhere else in Tosas or Rashi? That he certainly does, but not in a wild way, you know, not in a way that you smile and something is in a very serious, uh, you know, down down to earth uh, fashion, and. Um, there's a couple. There's a famous passage, very well known. I'm sure it's quoted in the biographies, where um, how's it go now? He says, "I don't have it in front of me. I'm not sitting room. I'm sitting room with books, but I don't have anything pulled out." But in Bamatsia, where you talk about Rosera, and you remember he lived in Babel, and then he came there to Israel, and he prayed to forget everything he learned in Babel. Remember that, and start all over again, and. Um, why would he? Why would somebody pray to God to forget all the lumbas he picked up in the first half of his life in the yeshivas in Babylonia? Why would he do that? And the Marshal speculates. He said maybe because the lumbas was like the lumbas you see in the yeshivas nowadays, in which it's all this baloney pilpul that's just like the mar- morale is criticizing. They build up a whole vineyard, you ask all kind of cautious, come up wild and crazy Jerusalem just to show off, and the whole thing is almanas lakanter. That, you know, the highest madrega in the yeshiva world, sometimes, he says, is to slug up the other guy. Uh, I remember, I remember, told me, how's it go? That a tell, this is a joke. He said, a teller dies and he goes to heaven. And they say that they're standing there at the pearly gates and they say, all right, tell us what you learned. And he said, no, you tell me a word and I'll slug it up. <laughs> like that. So he's criticizing, you know, as he said, the pilpul shall have and the almanas lakanter. Remember, he talks about the people. The whole point is to make the other guy look bad, and and he doesn't approve of that. And knows you don't get that in the writings of the marshal. And so I'm sure Talmudian were drawn to him. Say, I guess we don't need the politics. We don't need the fighting that sometimes goes on. They're just there, you know, just just for learning enough to put somebody else down. Just try to figure out what's 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 right. And there's no question in my mind that he must have had a Rashi type personality. So if he gave a shear and somebody corrected him, he said, "Oh, you know, you're right." Uh, that's a good point, and I'll rewrite it in my uh, in, in my uh, future book. And people, some people like that. You understand? Some people like that. Uh, they should anyway. And uh, what else is he? I remember he says, uh, Poland. You know, when we look at it from backwards, it's always oh, a golden era. He said, Poland. The biggest magaif around here is he didn't say child was a drunk about alcoholism. Apparently. <laughs> Maybe this goes on, and uh, maybe I'm living in my own shell. He said, in Poland, in his time, the minute was ever get stone drunk on Blamalka. <laughs> and he says, where does that, where did, where did they get that one from? He says, everybody gets drunk like a skunk on Saturday nights, and they think it's part of the mitzvah of Blamalka, and uh, it generates alcoholism, which leads to all kind of bad things, and he's blasting the, the drinking and the booze. Boy, that sounds contemporary, right? I mean, I'm sure it doesn't happen in Baltimore, but I've heard it happen in other places. Uh, and he, what else did he, he, he criticizes all these, uh, 
guys who get jobs as rabbis in communities and shuls strictly through the nepotism, through the old boy network. So they don't know anything. They're always trying to hide the fact that they don't know anything, and they do that by stalking everybody else. Uh, so you have the unqualified rabbis running around. And uh, he, call, he, he can't stand... This is... <laughs> nothing changes. He can't stand that these, these rich guys, they get rich through cheating, especially cheating Goyim and Jews, and unscrupulous uh, economic activities. And then once they get rich, everybody kicks up to them. They get the Kesser Torah Award, the Kesser Shem Torah Award in the Yeshivas. Everybody gives them the biggest cover. Naturally, then they have their hand in the leadership of the Gehilla. They put in the uh, rabbis, the school principals, and the others. And then everything falls apart, and everything goes to the devil. And, uh, you know, that doesn't sound so far off from other eras in Jewish history. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> Let's leave it alone. Uh, he knew what's going on in the world. You understand what I'm saying? He knew what's flying. And he doesn't hesitate to say it, but he does so in his in his writings. The type of rich drunk that he's referring to, he's not going to learn a marshal. A marshal, I mean, okay? And I remember he also says, and this shows he's been around the corner. It's part of the normal. He says, look, there are two... He writes this. There are two types of guys out there, boys. Some are in for learning and some are not. The one who's not for learning says, so go to business. That's fine. He even says something like, you know, you have to give the HR a little bit in the sense, no, you have to be a little bit normal and let the guy do something he likes, and that way he won't give in total. Uh, it's not such a thing as only learning. No, he's Mr. Only Learning. But he was around, and he saw life, and the morale writes like this also. And he said, you know, certain guys, the best thing you do for them is take them either straight from a high school or even earlier, and, and, and give them a job, put them, give them a, teach them a trade, you know, do some skill or something like that. Now, you wouldn't think that Marshall, of all people, would be the one saying that, but he does. So... All I can tell you is that um, if you are interested in who the Marshal was, you won't find anything in English. But if you can read Hebrew, if you go online, there's a couple of famous biographical essays. Not that great, but, uh, you know, from yesteryear, from the 1920s and a little earlier than that. And what they did was they went through all the different places, like I just did a tiny bit in the writings of the Marshal, which are numerous. He went through all shots, as you know. And uh, you can, and, and, and when you pick out the, the parts where he speaks about contemporary times, you're surprised that he was uh, number one on the ball, as I said before, very, very normal. We need people like this. You understand? The world's always looking for a guttle who's very normal, That's at least, at least in my opinion. So, um, will there be a revival of the study of the Marshall? I don't know. Uh, maybe. I'll know that I'm right when I see the Marshall coming out in Manuka, the, the Kudos. That I haven't seen yet. But this uh, Marshal Aruch, which they put out in about 510 Masechtis, I believe, if you're interested in making a Seder, this is the only practical way I can think of it now. We live in the period of the Dafiyon Mises, it's probably not going to happen. But if somebody wants to make a Seder, as I said before, in Gemara, she tells in the Marshal, and you get this Marshal Aruch, um, it's kind of interesting, it's very nitty-gritty, because you're being medayic in the words of the Marshal over here, that's what the oldies, uh, you know, Swarm did, the Peneshu and others. But I would say it's a very interesting and very worthwhile uh, kind of activity of a certain type of learning. It's not broad, but it's deep. And um, that's a, that, you know, I, th I think that's the best way we can say over there. Um, there were, in, it, I think it will always be the case. This is where I say he was, uh, he, he lucked out. It'll always be the case. As long as they publish Gemaras, they'll always publish the Marshal in the back. And that's different than, I, you know, like I said before, I can't think of any of his contemporaries who, att who attained that kind of status. And there, so he must have been onto something, right? 
and he was granted by heaven this uh, uh, eternal fame. Uh, that's all I'm going to say tonight. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.